Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Anyone else bristle a little when you hear the phrase, grief is the great equalizer? I get it. We will all experience some type of grief before we die. But the idea that grief equalizes us doesn't play out in reality. Our grief is unique, and the prevalence of loss and how the world responds to us as we grieve those losses are both shaped by forces like racism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, and other forms of oppression. This is why it's so important for grief support services to be both culturally and community relevant. Lamaya Broussard, School and Community Services Clinician at Uplift Center for Grieving Children in Philadelphia, works directly with justice-involved youth and queer and trans youth who are also grieving. She's been in the field for over 13 years and has worked with thousands of youth in the greater Philadelphia area, youth whose grief is unrecognized, unacknowledged, and often penalized. Lamai and I talk about her work at Uplift and what she's learned about why it is so important for grief support services to be culturally and community-specific. We also delve into what it was like to do this work during the pandemic and how Lamaya's personal experiences with loss play a role in her work with youth. In this episode, Lamaya shares a lot of valuable resources, so please check out the show notes for the links and phone numbers she references. Lamaya, thank you so much for making time to talk with me for Grief Out Loud. Yeah, thank you, Jana, for having me. I'm so honored to be here. So Lamaya, in this work, at least this has been true for me, there's like the words that are in my title, community response program coordinator, which may or may not accurately reflect like what I actually do day to day. So just wondering like your title, school and community services clinician, what does that look like for you in your day to day work life? Yeah, so I provide grief groups uh, to the schools and community um, organizations throughout Philadelphia. So that can be our K through 12th grade that can be overage, undercredited, that can be charter, private, parochial uh, schools that we work with. And that also includes uh, some of our community organizations. I have been able to work with um, one of our curfew centers that work with juvenile justice involved youth, as well as another organization that's specifically for queer and trans youth here in Philadelphia. Uh, Pre-COVID in person, meaning Um, We've been able to work with over 100 schools, more than 1,000 students, and since COVID, about more than 800 students and over 60 groups and over 80 schools, which is phenomenal, as you can imagine, given all of the changes that a lot of our youth um, and the school system particularly went through. So I'd certainly say that my school and community uh, services clinician is exactly what I do and love to do here at Uplift. That's truly amazing of, you know, we think of the last 18 months as a time when that grief support is so needed and that for a lot of 
programs and communities, the obstacles were just too much to continue services during this time. And so to hear how many children and families and youth that you and Uplift have been able to reach is just, yeah, truly phenomenal. So thank you for making that happen. And, you know, a question I get asked all the time is like, what's your personal connection to this work? And it seems like sometimes there's grief in our lives that brings us to this work. And sometimes we get to this work and then the grief in our lives makes itself known. So just wondering for you, like what role did grief play in your life growing up or, and, and even now in your adulthood? Huh, I would say a huge one. Um, mostly though, I would say the one that was most marked in my life was between 2014 and 2015. I experienced compounded grief and loss for the first time ever. Um, so for the first time around that time, I realized my sister's suppressed grief that I had. She died my junior year in high school. So that was 13 years earlier at that time. I had lost a job. I had lost romantic relationships. I had lost friends that I thought would be there. I lost family relationships and support. And I want to say, you know, my family loved me. They always have you know, always will still to this day, obviously. But I will say that there was a stagnated and limited understanding and tunnel vision of interpretation of what I needed. So they still saw me as that child and adolescent and wanted to protect me, take me away and comfort me instead of seeing me as the adult with real adult life stressors that I could not just up and leave from at that time. So they wanted to give me what, what, what they thought that I wanted and needed instead of hearing me for what I needed at the time. And then to add to that, I had um, a cousin die of suicide. I also had a childhood boyfriend that we were like off and on with um, that I thought, you know, be that one that, okay, eventually you thought you would marry. And then he died suddenly. And then I had a friend and brother-in-law that died like a day apart. So, you know, for me, I would say that it really gave me that main aim, I would say, with understanding our youth um, and their compounded grief and loss. And just as I needed my family to be able to understand me and hear me for where I was and what I needed, that's the same as I would say with our youth, that we have to be able to hear them and see them and believe them. And, and work with them on their compounded grief and loss that they're reporting to us. And I can overall say though, you know, I'm truly grateful through it all, Jana, because it has been what I am now, you know, as a part of my specialty and now my life purpose that I bring to my job and even the greater community that I work with. And as the grief experts say, as you kind of hinted to earlier, you know, I didn't choose this life, it chose me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, one of the terms that I hear often is this idea of cumulative loss, right? That we accumulate losses either over a long period of time or in a very compressed period of time, as you described. And the term compounded is is new, newer to me in that realm. And I just wonder, do those two things mean the same to you? Or do you see those as different ways that the grief shows up in our world? Yeah, they're, de- they're definitely, I would say, more synonymous. So Accumulative, you know, and compounded is basically when you have one loss on top of the other on top of the other. Like for me in 2014 and 2015, me losing my job, you know, that that impacted that impacted me greatly financially. And then also it impacted me emotionally. And then on top of that, you know, 
losing uh, friendships or relationships. And so just like some of um, many people, like with the accumulated loss, like with COVID-19, if you, whether you had COVID-19 or had family impacted by COVID-19, and then that impacted you going to work, and then that on turn impacted, you know, your health and losing health insurance, if you lost your job, if you lost your housing. And so it definitely is synonymous. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, you know, to know that many people, um, especially in these past 18 months, have experienced that, still experiencing that. As you were talking, I was thinking of these two images. When I think of cumulative, I think of like a lint roller, you know, when you're trying to get the dog hair off your sweater. Yes. And you sort of like roll it and it accumulates. And then I think of compounded as like layers of sediment, like the dirt, the rock, the sand, the grass, the all the other layers that get pressed down. And that oftentimes with grief, a new loss can uh, inspire a process of excavating other layers of sediment and rock and dirt of our grief. Um, so I thank you for the the image of compounded grief. I'm going to be taking that forward with me. Yeah, no problem. You, you exactly that. And that's how I felt my life. It was the, you know, the large layer at the bottom, you know, that as they'll say, like in the Bible, beget another one and beget another one. <laughs> so <laughs> you, it, you described it very well. And, and I'm laughing, but obviously, you know, we understand that is, is is laughing from that that reality of uh, uh, of yes, and laughing from a place now where I am definitely in a much better place and a more healed place, having gone through that, but never to minimize you know those that I know that are dealing with that right now. Absolutely, and you know, thank you for giving us a little window into your personal experience with grief, and and switching back to more of your professional realm. You know, you mentioned the communities that you work with, like queer and trans youth youth that are aging out of the foster care, youth that are involved in the juvenile justice system. And, you know, something I hear a lot is grief is universal. It affects us all. And I there's some friction there for me with that term, because while it might be universal, I don't think it's the same. And just wondering for you, when you think about those different communities that you work with, what is important about having grief services that are culturally specific and community specific? Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, Uplift serves majority Black and Brown families and students. And so NAMI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, um, around the time after George Floyd was killed at the hands of police, uh, May 29, 2020, uh, NAMI declared racism as a public health crisis. And so racial trauma, police brutality, social injustice, and racial injustice, excuse me, Um, The coronavirus pandemic that disproportionately affected, as we know, a lot of our Black and Brown communities, the Black Lives Matter movement even needing to exist, all of these are part of that public health crisis and are very unique to these marginalized communities um, that we serve at Uplift and that uh, we know are majority Black and Brown. Um, They all intersect a lot of them with this public health crisis. Therefore, it is imperative, as you're saying, for us to not only look at, okay, grief is universal in terms of every human being in this world uh, will at some point be um, impacted by grief. However, uh, we do have to make sure that we address specific types of grief, 
because for the communities that I mentioned, some of those specific grief, grief excuse me, is disenfranchised grief. Uh, that grief that basically is not socially, it's not accepted because it's not socially validated. And so some of those things I mentioned where that could have included and, and did include and does still include a lot of the uh, racial injustice and police brutality that was occurring at that time, um, you know, around May and the time with George Floyd. And just as we know, disenfranchised can include an empty nester, can include miscarriages, those different losses that is unfortunately not always validated um, in society. And then prolonged grief, which is synonymous to uh, complex, I'm sorry, complicated, <laughs> prolonged and complicated are synonymous. But that speaks to that grief that usually it speaks about when the symptoms worsen, when it's sudden loss or unexpected young people, uh, which we know that affects a lot of our young people in Philadelphia, when they've had, you know, people die suddenly, unexpectedly, you know, they're very young. And so that is a particular type of grief that we're seeing a lot in Philadelphia, as well as other places. And then I'll talk a little bit more about this, but suffocated grief, which was something that I really learned a lot about during this whole pandemic. And as I said, I promise I will talk a little bit more about that later. But, but there are also, as you mentioned, you know, a part of that marginalized community are queer and trans youth. And just looking at the national uh, statistics, you know, from the Trevor Project that says LGB youth who come from highly rejected families are 8.4 times as likely to have attempted suicide as LGB peers who reported no or low levels of family rejections. Also, each episode of LGBT victimization, such as physical or verbal harassment or abuse, increased the likelihood of self-harming behaviors by 2.5 times on average. And so in Pennsylvania, some of those queer and trans youth are more unemployed, uninsured, food insecurity. So it's really unethical to not have a grief community that is culturally specific, just like our medical fields have specific practices for specific specialties. If you know, you're not going to go to your general practitioner and continue only seeing your general practitioner if you're having the issues with the brain. They're going to send you with the neurologist, you know, they're they're going to send you if it's issues with the lungs to um, you know, pulmonary doctor and so cardiologist for the heart. So I like to use that example um, to say that, you know, that's the same way when it comes to grief. I'm looking forward to talking more about, you know, the concept of suffocated grief, which is from our colleague, Dr. Tichelle Bordier and, yes. and listeners. There's an episode that we talked to Dr. Bordier all about it. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, the other thing you said that really stood out to me is thinking about that concept of disenfranchised grief of that there's grief that goes unacknowledged, unseen, uh, invalidated by our communities, by our friends, by society. And that for some people, there's the grief itself goes on invalidated, but oftentimes they spend a lot of their lives having to validate their existence. So again, it's that accumulation of, you know, I think for myself as being a queer person of being in settings where I might have to fight to have people recognize my existence exactly, <laughs> say that it's valid. And then if I were to add on a miscarriage or an empty nest syndrome or some other loss that's not really seen or recognized, it just compounds again um, of creating those environments for folks where they don't have to start with validating their own existence before they even can get to the place of, hey, can I get some support for my grief as well? 
Exactly. And that's a part of why we even look at, you know, the ambiguous type of losses at Uplift. And specifically, we would initially before COVID-19, we really focused this a lot with our queer and trans youth, because as we know, when it comes to a lot of our queer and trans youth, they may not have had someone that died in their life, but that relationship is dead to them. That, that family connection, that friend connection is dead to them because of the way that they identify. And so we've been able to expand that in the pandemic because there's also mental health crises and struggles that are not validated. And so we've even seen in Philadelphia, you know, the, the, the ramifications of that and how it impacted the media and desensitization that happens, that's definitely invalidated. Running over and over on the news and seeing, you know, children seeing their peers' ages, their peer group, you know, being killed daily and being killed even at the hands of police, that's a part of disenfranchised grief. It's not really validated a lot as this is grief, this is impacting. And certainly, as you mentioned, you know, having to validate who you are and your existence coming into a room because you belong to a community, you're, you're a human being. And so you need to be seen as such and your grief is very real. And, and everyone who is grieving, as we know, the grief is real. And there are specific types of grief that we know that our marginalized communities experience are at a greater risk of experiencing. So I wholeheartedly agree with what you said. What's your sense of how working with these communities has shifted or changed your own view of grief and, and what these youth need in their grief? Oh, yes. Yeah. So it has really bettered me as a clinician. I would definitely say I've been more trauma and grief informed, my view. So having that purposeful disclosure, you know, where we are in a time where we know every one of us have been impacted by the pandemic in one way or the other, unfortunately. And so being in a group every week where you show up and even just in the introduction of my name and saying that my name is and the person who died is or the loss that I've had is if I'm doing a group where it may not be a loss from a death, but it may be a, a different type of ambiguous loss that everyone in a group experience, you know, that purposeful disclosure, I would say, is is even more so important at this time. And it's amazing to see how the youth and especially when we was in person, like the body language that would shift and change and how the youth would look at you and a lot of our justice involved youth and, and they would look and hear you because depending on the group, I would disclose, you know, the different losses that I've had or the amount of losses I had. And so like what I just as involved you to for them to look and see like, whoa, this this facilitator that I completely may have prejudged, she's actually had multiple losses, you know, mm -hmm. and so how that has demanded their attention and opened them up, you know, and of course that varies versus when, we're, you know, I'm working with the younger groups. Um, but it expanded my view on Black Lives Matter and how grief and trauma responses manifest in youth in these contexts. And so um, also helped me see adjudicated youth that I mentioned a little bit ago, seen in a different lens and how grief responses vary in different cultures. Um, and so example given, you know, if we're talking about the looting or the burning down of buildings that we've seen that on the on surface or face value, it can look at well, that's very criminalized and, and there need to be penalties for that. But I'm able to understand that, you know, part of it is that disenfranchised grief, that feeling invalidated or suffocated grief is, you know, feeling devalued and invalidated. So that gets misplaced onto property and others. 
And so being able to have that understanding, and then this is where I want to pick up, you know, with the great Dr. Tashelle Bordier, as you mentioned, her suffocated grief uh, definition that she coined, you know, Dr. Tashelle Bordier out of the University of Missouri, Columbia. Um, when I really heard about the suffocated grief, which as we know, you know, well, may not know, but she defined it as um, both unacknowledged and penalized grief. And so this has really been very impactful for me during this time, because again, the way that Dr. Tashell used it and explained, you know, an example of if a parent or a family member is incarcerated and that student now has to go to class, but that student is grieving and that student is falling behind on their schoolwork. And so as a result, they may have to go to a specialized education course or may fail. And so it's not being validated and acknowledged that this is actually happening because of the grief that that child is experiencing. That happens with adults as well. You know, if you're dealing with grief, you're not able to go to work. Now your job performance is suffering and now the productivity is low and this may impact you being able to keep your job. And so looking at that and seeing how that plays out, especially in our marginalized communities where, okay, whether you peacefully protest or not peacefully protest, you're met you know, with a lot of the, the intimidation and the National Guard or even rubber bullets or being sprayed by gas, you know, so it's like you have no place to, to grieve. It's not validated. Plus now it's actually suffocated because it's not validated and, and it's penalized. I will say that has really helped me working with these communities and have really changed my view in the grief work that I've done and, and working with youth in grief. You know, a lot of our work, at least mine, I'm not sure if it's the same for you and your groups, is, is really focused on talking with youth and adults who are dealing with grief about what they need and how they can access it, like how they can best advocate and support themselves in their grief. But I sometimes wonder about the other half of that conversation that doesn't get addressed, which is what do we as a community and what do we as a society need to be doing to support those in grief? So it's not just all on them to advocate for themselves and ask for what they need. And what do we need to be doing to change the environment in which people are expressing their grief to decrease that penalization and decrease that invalidation? Yeah, you, you make some really good points, Jana. And um, I would say first and foremost, I think making space for more healing centered and culturally relevant and non-deficit-based approaches is necessary. In the city of Philadelphia, you know, we must incorporate grief when it comes to violence prevention. You know, these numbers I'm about to say probably have changed since I looked it up, but about a month ago, but there was 822 school-age youth in Philadelphia that were injured or killed by gun violence since January, 2020. So we have to be able to incorporate the grief in that, not just looking at violence in a vacuum, looking at the root focus, being root focus opposed to just symptom base. What else is causing these responses? I think those things will help us to be able to contextualize and normalize and decriminalize a lot of what we are seeing when it does come to uh, grief that we know as a community um, that we know our families are dealing with and how to help them to be able to um, be better supported. It reminds me of the shift that seems to be happening in the suicide prevention world, at least something I've noticed in the last year, where the conversations seem to move 
from how do we help people want to live the life that they have to how do we create a world that has lives that people want to live mm. and i was like oh yeah exactly <laughs> why did it take us so long to get yeah, here yeah <laughs> but, I'm you know, like, like yeah, that hit jenna like yeah <laughs> to move away from that like what is wrong with you that you can't enjoy and and love this life because what are we not seeing in terms of the ways that racism and transphobia and homophobia and oppression are playing out that are eroding the quality of life that people have access to. Mm-hmm. So I think about that with grief as well. Like, what are we, what are we as a society doing that is uh, eclipsing, well, creating situations that are causing grief? And then once that has happened, what are the ways in which we're eclipsing people's valid response of grief to those oppressive situations? Yes, yes. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I'm, I'm even grateful for podcasts such as this that's really putting out information that is informative and, and can be educational and, and, and accessible to those who are in the field, who are not in the field, you know, to be able to have better insight. Because we know that not everyone understands it like those of us who are in the field, but it is very much a part of, of what we deal with on a daily basis, whether we are aware or not aware. And so to not have it included in our practices, that really does a disservice. So I'm thinking about our listeners, and the majority of, of them are folks who are kind of in the room with us, mm-hmm. right, the grief room. Mm-hmm. And But there are also people tuning in who are clinicians and teachers and community leaders, church leaders. Mm-hmm. I just want to like, what, you've touched on quite a bit of this already, but are there specific things you can think of that they should and that I should probably keep in mind when supporting the grief of youth who are involved in the juvenile justice system? Yeah, I would say what I've observed, um, learned um, by observation as well has been told directly, you know, from youth I've been able to work with is for one, you know, and this may sound very simplistic, but, you know, one, that they're human beings, you know, that there are a lot of mistakes that a lot of our justice-involved youth have made that has caused them to now be a part of a disparate justice system. That is not equal. We do know that the juvenile justice system um, and even the justice system has a a disproportionate amount of our our Black and uh, Latina or Latino or Latinx communities in them, especially though um, um, our Black communities. And so what, what happens when we're not able to really to consider this and see this is that it increases the risk of society's isolation. And so when we're not able to be aware of that and, and we see that our justice, um, juvenile justice system remain that way, then there are no jobs, there are no schools for these uh, youth to be able to go to or to be able to be a part of. So that increases their isolation in society. We know it only takes one thing that they will be penalized again for. And so it can be a lifelong reminder to a lot of times our justice-involved youth are bumping up against uh, services or persons who are in those services that are to be helpful, but are like lifelong reminders by what they are going through. And when it is that more penalized view of the justice-involved youth, and oftentimes this is for survival crimes, which is also common grief responses, or or we would even say at one point was viewed as more age appropriate. So if a youth, again, if a youth just, which many of our youth 
in the juvenile justice system, they've witnessed their best friend in their arms being shot, killed, murdered. And so if they then have a reaction and, and then they go to school, if they go to school and then they get in a fight with someone and it's just looked at as, oh, okay, you got in a fight, zero tolerance, you're arrested, now you're, 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 you're being processed, now you have a case, now you have to go to these programs. Now you're 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 looked at now as as a delinquent and treated as a delinquent a lot of times, and so that can be felt by a lot of the youth. They can feel that being viewed as inhumane and within systems. So I would say just put in put in some of that context with it and 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 understanding more for those especially not in our grief community, understanding more of a lot of the behaviors that justice involved youth are experiencing or showing um, is very common grief responses. And so it's just maladaptive ways that they may be coping. And for something that was done in the middle of a crisis moment or something that was done um, out of pain, out of, out of being traumatized, that now these youth have to live with for the rest of their life, you know, that's really not okay. And so those are some of the just kind of more basic, but a lot of what I've heard our justice involved youth have said directly, you know, that they want to be known as, look, we're human and, and, and we've just made some mistakes, but we have a lot going for us. You know, we're focused on our school and all those things. And so just being able to understand that is what I would add. And would you say it's similar or different or maybe just a little shifted when it comes to supporting queer and trans youth in their grief? Oh, yes. And I was actually going to definitely <laughs> go into that, you know, that there are some continued disparities in the LGBTQ community. And I will say queer and trans, you know, just as the umbrella term, but to include all those that are in the community, you know, just just some more stats that I wanted to share to kind of shape this uh, transgender people and particularly black and Latina transgender women are marginalized, stigmatized, and criminalized in our country. They face violence every day and fear of going to the police for help. This is according to the National Center for Transgender and Equality, but also the Human Rights Campaign in 2020, you know, deemed 2020 as the deadliest year because there was about at least 44 trans or gender nonconforming people that were fatally shot or killed by other violent means, majority which were Black and Latinx gender women. And so some of even in that community included one in Philadelphia, very known in the fashion um, community and was a part of organizing the Rock the Runway um, as an empowerment show for trans youth, Dominique Remy Fells. And so in June, she was killed in the middle of, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And the same week, another trans youth was killed, trans, excuse me, woman was killed in Ohio. And in Philadelphia, there are several murders of transgender women that haven't been solved. So advocacy is very much needed in the community to ensure that Black trans are receiving equal care and services and making sure that there is intersectionality conversations that's actually including race and that are done though by well-informed trauma and racial informed and sensitive persons. And one of also the things that I really appreciated from the Trevor's Project if you go on that uh, website, which Trevor Project, for those who may not know, is, is an organization and they have a, uh, a number two that is available 24 seven um, for youth under 25. 
but there is a section under the resources under downloads and there are resources that are there for those queer and trans youth and how to help them approach those intersectional conversations um, from their perspective and if they you know how to do it in a way that is safest for them and, and it walks them through and that's really good resources that are there that can help someone to be able to view those um, because as we see there are definitely um, things that this needs to be known when it comes to our queer and trans communities and the disparities that are there still exist and even the attic um, here in Philadelphia they have the Bryson Institute um, give dynamic trainings um, and you can contact you know them by Bryson Institute at the attic youthcenter.org um, and then we also at uplift we have our queer and trans hours on our hope line which is Thursdays 4 p.m to 8 p.m and that's at 1-833-745-4673 anyone can call that number queer and trans youth and if you want to speak to another clinician who is also in the community and or who at least is very aware and trained and trauma-informed with that, that definitely exists. But definitely to answer um, your question, Jana, that certainly applies um, it, to our queer and trans communities. And Lamaya, is that number available for folks nationwide or just folks living in the Philadelphia area? No, it's actually nationwide. So it, our Philly Hope Line was essentially created, you know, for our families um, and students here in the public school system in Philadelphia, but with the pandemic especially, and it was created in the pandemic, we certainly have calls come in from out of state. We have um, queer and trans youth that will call directly. We've had, um, whether it was family members of queer and trans youth that was calling on their behalf uh, or friends, we've had that uh, happen. So they can definitely call that number. Um, anytime during those hours, we're, we're available Monday through Friday, but that is the specific hours for our Korean trans uh, youth. And listeners, uh, just in case you missed it, I will put it in the show notes, the phone number, um, and links as well to all the organizations that Lamaya just mentioned. And, and speaking of the pandemic, just wondering, you know, in your work, what, what has it been like for you personally mm. providing grief support during the COVID-19 pandemic over the last What's it been? 92 years, 18 months, I think we're at. It feels like it's been forever. I can't remember what work was like before the pandemic, but just wondering, wow, what has it been like for you? Oh my gosh. Yes. So I will say initially it was very challenging. Um, as many organizations was going through challenges, you know, for me personally, trying to adapt, prioritize, respond, and to brace myself for the impact and to transform as a clinician to best support our families and students was a focus um, for me as a clinician, but then also even more personally, it was challenging because me along with several of my colleagues in the beginning, uh, we were furloughed um, from, from our jobs. And so it was right at a time for me where I was getting ready to move. So I was unable to do that. And so for the first time since graduating undergrad, um, I had housing instability and I had to move in with my best friend, which I'm so grateful for, um, who's like a sister to me. Um, and so there was loss of housing security, uh, job security. Um, my mom also was ill um, and she actually ended up uh, dying around that time. And then you had George Floyd and racial injustice and police brutality and as a black woman and clinician and, and, and um, working with majority of our black students, 
that was extremely, you know, personally uh, difficult and, you know, being viewed a lot of times as Black women as that's those supposed to hold and care for everyone. And so having to make sure personally I was okay enough to do that. And um, as I mentioned, my mom, she did not die of COVID-19, but she lived in Louisiana. And when she was actively dying, this was during a time that Louisiana was a hot spot. And, you know, as many places you couldn't get into the hospital as normally. And so, you know, trying to navigate to get, get home and, and to, to see her. And, and so, you know, the grief that I was going through with that. And, and I want to just say too, and acknowledge how grateful I was, you know, I did end up obviously getting my job back at, at Uplift. <laughs> it's me being able to be here with you today. Um, uh, not too long after, but, you know, I also was so grateful, you know, for the bereavement support that that Uplift provided, not only in our mission, not only, you know, in writing, um, not only to our families, but to staff. You know, my team was extremely uh, supportive for me at that time with my mom, because, you know, we do grief work. So you're like, oh, my <laughs> God, like. My, my, my mom, it doesn't, you know, that's one of the closer, you know, that and, and a partner or a spouse or something, you know, it's like, okay, well, what is this going to mean for my job? You know? And so I didn't have to worry about that. And I know that's not always the case for many people. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, so then I started to adjust and then it was, you know, the students were, you know, were suffering greatly, like attendance wise and coping with the compounded loss. But then, you know, things started to, to level out and get stable. And even though it wasn't the numbers we normally would have in our groups, the youth who came wanted to be there. And those who didn't come, you know, we, we, we really hope that they're, you know, able to come this coming school year. And we understand, though, that obviously this is a pandemic and in the middle of your life and world being turned upside down to, to do a grief group. And, and now you have your original grief that you were processing, maybe which was a death, but now you have all these other losses on top. So it was very challenging initially, Jana, it really was. Um, it got real rocky. And then, you know, it, it started to smooth out for me. So you've had 18 months of your life really paralleling so many of the yes. experiences of people you're supporting in your groups as well with the death of your mom and housing instability and economic concerns and all the other things that can come with both, you know, death and non-death losses. So that has been a tremendous amount for you to be carrying and wondering what practices did you turn to for yourself? I know, you know, Uplift has been extremely supportive, but, and your, and your friend being there for you, but what other mm -hmm. things have you turned to for yourself? Yeah. So Definitely been able to have those connections. I was able to have, you know, whether it was, um, you know, my uh, best friend or my friends from back home, you know, doing, doing, you know, birthday Zoom party, you know, being able to uh, stay connected, you know, with some family members, um, being there and and communicating the process and work through some of those challenges. Um, I'm a big movie buff. Uh, I, I said it was amazing how. <laughs> How, how Netflix had become like a priority bill. <laughs> it was like, okay, you got other bills, you have your insurance and then you have Netflix. No, but it was like, um, just being able to, you know, watch movies, um, you know, safely dating when I could, um, because that, that was a whole different dynamic for that. Um, 
safe distance and outings, um, you know, my spiritual life, um, being able to really, to really get that inner strength in my faith, um, has, has been tremendously helpful for me, um, and continuing just to serve my community and keeping that healing perspective, um, and just staying like abreast to a holistic view of grief and trauma. So I really, you know, for me, try to put those things in perspective and, and being able to honor my mom, you know, honor her legacy has really helped. I'm so grateful for that because it's really helped me to be able to healthily grieve her. Um, had I not been able to do that, I think it would have been even more challenging, you know, because as we know, you're never prepared for that. Even if you are aware, you know, that it could happen, you're never fully prepared. And so those have been some of the things that have, have definitely helped me to be able to, you know, cry when I needed to cry, um, you know, but that has definitely been what has helped me. Well, Amaya, I'm just, I'm grateful to you for the work that you're continuing to do during such a challenging time and for the impact that you're having on the lives of so many youth and adults, you know, across Philadelphia and those who are calling from around the country when they call the Hope Line. So yeah, just thank you for that work and grateful to your mom for you being here and being able to make that impact on our world. Wow. Thank you, Jenna. That means a lot to hear you say that. That really, that's one of the best compliments that, you know, a daughter could ever receive. And before we kind of end our time together, I want to make sure that listeners who are like, I want to connect more with Lamaya, I want to connect more with Uplift. Can you share some of the ways that people can, um, you know, learn more about the work that you're doing and knowing, again, listeners, I'll put it in the show notes, but sometimes it's nice just to hear it if you want to go right now to your phone to look things up. Sure. So you can check us out at um, our website, upliftphilly.org. That's upliftphilly, P-H-I-L-L-Y. Um, .org. You can learn about all of our services that we offer and provide um, all of our trainings and resources. Um, we have a lot of videos that myself and my team have put up from all departments in our organization to be able to further uh, support our, our families and students with grief. You can also check us out on Facebook at Uplift Center for Grieving Children. Um, you can call the office directly if you have questions. 267-437-3123. If you want to reach me directly, you can feel free to email me at Lamaya, L-A-M-Y-A at upliftphilly.org. Or you can reach me on my direct line at 267-367-4576. Well, thank you, Lamaya. You are brave for putting your personal contact information out there. So, Well, that is my job, direct line. <laughs> Well, again, I'm just appreciating your time today and all of your your wisdom, your insights, and yeah, just helping me and our listeners think about things in a little bit different way and, and good reminders of bringing our ability to see the humanity of everyone that we are sitting with who is facing grief and the remembrance that even though grief is universal, that it is not, it doesn't play out in the same way for everybody. So thank you again, Lamaya. Thank you, Jana, so much for this opportunity. Thanks for inviting me. And um, I look forward to, to, um, you know, to all of what you all are continuing to do at Grief Out Loud. And um, I just thank the listeners as well. And, and thank you. 
And Lamaya started it, but I'll continue it. Listeners, thank you for being part of our community. If uh, you're new to our show, you're always welcome to reach out to me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. That's also our website where you can find all of our past episodes as well as our resources. We have a series of tip sheets and other resources for kids, teens, young adults, adults, and community members. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.